Thank you, Melissa. As the worship team comes down and finds a seat, we're going to jump into our study of the Word this morning. So you can get your Bibles out and open to Nehemiah chapter 12. Nehemiah 12. And as you're turning there, you can look at uh, page 564. The Pew Bible in front of you, 564. Or just open to the center of your Bible and start going backwards past Psalms. You'll come to Nehemiah. As you're turning and finding your way to Nehemiah 12, I just remind you that take note in your bulletin. We have an informational meeting today about the uh, mission trip, the construction trip that will be leaving in May to go to Arizona to work uh, amongst the Navajo people. It's a very exciting opportunity uh, for us. Last week, I know that uh, many of you went to the uh, meeting for the Sioux, and now we have one today at 4 o'clock for the Navajo, as we'll be ministering alongside them and uh, helping them disciple those in their own congregation with Mark and Penny. So we're grateful for that opportunity. So you be a part of that. If you're interested, come find out about it. Nehemiah 12, we're going to talk about uh, this morning, same day, new people. This study that we've been doing through Nehemiah, Sea of Faces, has really uh, been uh, a, an amazing time together as God's shown us how He uses ordinary people who, for the most part, often feel like they're just another face in a crowd of people that, why would God choose me or use me? I don't have the, the skills. I don't have the, the, uh, the training. I'm, I'm not the most likely person to be chosen to do something, and yet that's the whole story of this book, that God chooses a cupbearer who is serving a pagan king, Artaxerxes of Persia, and here's Nehemiah who gets a burden in his heart. He knows what God's plan is uh, to glorify himself through a people, and so he just is obedient to the little things that he knows, and God does all the rest. And so we have been studying through. In fact, next week we'll finish our study in Nehemiah. Now we're going to be looking mostly at chapter 12, and for those of you that have been very diligent following along, you'll notice that uh, we barely touched on 11, but the reason for that is, is that I dealt very in-depth with chapter 11 and the first half of chapter 12 about a year ago. So you can go online and listen to that sermon. If you go to michaelmemorial.org, you can find that sermon there. It's called uh, It Matters to God. It was almost exactly a year ago. I believe it was April of last year. And so we've seen where God is building a people. And last week, we began to move into this discussion about how he's the process that God is using through restoring relationship and then moving them uh, into identity, and then that causes them to respond rightly to him. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we study this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and Lord, now we pray that you'd help us. Help us to see clearly that which you would have us to see this morning. Lord, you are an amazing Heavenly Father. And Father, we know that it's, it's hard to see that oftentimes, Lord, that everything in this world is working to stop us from seeing you for who you are, to try to twist or pervert our understanding of you, Lord. And Father, what you've given us to combat that, what you've given us to give us victory in knowing you is your word. And so, Lord, now I pray you'll take it and open it up before us that we might have ears to hear hearts that will receive, God, that you might be glorified in all that's done today. In Jesus' name I pray, 
Amen. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, the Lord says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. This is just another illustration. You'll find the same thing uh, in 2 Peter in the New Testament and over and over in various places in Scripture where God is letting us know that He is a builder of people. He builds people individually, and then He puts them in community and builds a people corporately. That's His methodology. That's the way He is orchestrating His plan of redemption on the earth. And oftentimes we uh, miss that. We sort of get things jumbled up, and if we start changing around the way God works, we're going to find ourselves in a heap of trouble. And so what we said, as God has revealed to us His plan to rebuild this people and then in turn rebuild us, is that there's a few steps that we see outlined in the study of Nehemiah. And the first step is that God restores relationship. What He does is He comes to a people in Nehemiah who have been estranged from Him for 150 years. Their disobedience has led them to captivity, first by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and then by the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire. But it's about their disobedience, and it's about God drawing them back to Him and restoring relationship with them. And it's all about the perspective of saying that God's not, not uh, punitively punishing them. God is bringing about change in them to restore relationship with Him. The, the next step we see is that once relationship is restored, He rebuilds our identity. That what happens is when people are in a right relationship with God, they begin to recognize that what matters most is whose they are. That they are God's people. And they realize that this God that they have a relationship with defines everything about them. And they begin to respond accordingly, which then leads to the reshaped actions. Now, if you just go out there and try to uh, behave better, if you just go out there and try to do the right things the way you think they ought to be done... That's going to maybe last for a time, but it's not going to last for long. Eventually, you're going to burn out, run out of gas, fizzle out, and that's going to be the end of it. You cannot walk in rightness with God unless you have a relationship with Him. That's what gives us the power to accomplish the things that He calls us to do. And so we were looking at how, beginning in chapter 9, the people responded. Their actions in response to God's restoring relationship and then rebuilding their identity they then respond with this with following his word and doing the things that his word says that they ought to do and we said at the end of the very last verse of chapter 9 they determine they're going to make a covenant they're going to write this document down and they're going to say lord here are the things we're going to do and lord we promise to do these things they're so uh being so intentional about wanting to glorify God and not slip back into the, the pain and suffering of their past. So they're writing all these things down. And we talked about how there were three specific areas that they focused on that they felt like were weak links for them. Areas where they might slip back into uh, distance relationship with God, that they might go back into rebellion or disobedience. And so those areas were uh, laid out as their homes, first of all. They focused on that in verse 30 of chapter 10. They said, we're not going to give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor make our daughters for their sons. 
They're going to be distinctive. It's about identity. God's saying, I want you to be a distinctive people. And in order to do that, the same thing with you and me, we have to have homes that are distinctive, that are distinctly Christian. That not, Not because we're trying to make ourselves look Christian, but we're responding to our identity as Christians. You see, if you are confident in your identity in something, people are going to be able to see that. That's what you're going to live out. And that's what they're showing here. Secondly, they began to uh, deal with their witness, their witness to the world around them. That was very important to them. So they said that in verse 31, if the peoples of the land brought wares and grain to sell on the Sabbath day, that they weren't going to buy it on the Sabbath day. Not to be legalistic about it, but to let the people around them know, we're different. We belong to God. We have a heavenly Father. And we have a relationship with Him. And we're distinct from you. And so we want to set aside this day to worship Him and to glorify Him. And we don't want to be involved in all the trappings. We want this day to be different than it is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. and so, Or really Sunday in this case. But that's the, the, the thing about their witness. Then they moved on and talked about their worship. They talked about their responsibility to the house of God. And they said in verse 35 that... They're going to make ordinances to bring the first fruits of the ground and the first fruits of their trees year by year to the house of the Lord. And they go through this list of ways they're going to be a blessing to uh, the, the Levites and the priests and the house of God. And they're not going to neglect it and let it run down anymore. And so they end in verse 39 and say that we're not going to neglect the house of God. Again, it's about identity. That a people whose homes are distinctively Christian, whose behavior and the way that they operate their daily lives uh, around people who aren't is distinctive. And also, what would it say to the world around them if if their their place of worship were were run down or all out of sorts and they, they weren't faithful to that? And so in those three areas, they were nailing down their identity as the people of God. And so I cannot stress this enough. Identity always precedes action. Always. If it doesn't, it's not real, it's not authentic, and it will not last. The gospel declares that we are accepted in Jesus Christ, therefore we do the things that he commands us to do. It's not the other way around. Because in the gospel, even when we fail... We're not less accepted. Our relationship doesn't go away. God doesn't change uh, in his uh, relationship towards us. But in our disobedience, we simply don't experience the relationship for what it ought to be. But it doesn't mean that he loves us any less. It doesn't mean that he changes the way that he is, uh, his commitment to us or backs up on anything that he said in his word about his people. And I want you to see this morning that all of that is by design. That God intentionally did this the way that he did because he was building towards uh, all through Scripture. He's pointing towards a time that would come when there would be new covenant believers like we are today. People who would be able to exist in the confidence and the freedom of Christ. And we would know that we're in a relationship with one that loves us in such a way that he refuses to give up on us, that he will, he will chasten us, he will mold us, he will shape us, but he will never give up on us, and he will do whatever is necessary to, 
be a part of our lives, to bring us to relationship deeper and deeper with Him. And that is such an encouragement and such a blessing. And here's why. This is why, especially last week, you know, you could, I could really sense in the faces that were looking back at me as we were talking about this issue of identity where many of you were, were beginning to, to really wrestle through some of these things. Because isn't it true that for all of us, we have these moments where what's going on on the inside is, is wrestling with what's going on on the outside. The things that are happening inside of us don't, don't connect to the things that are going on around us. It's, it's like there's a, a battle between everything that is in us, everything that we want to be, everything that we're supposed to be, everything that we should be. On one side, that's going on. But then on the outside of us, there's all of our circumstances and all of our situations, all of our memories, all of our regrets, all of our past. You see, we live in a world that is utterly committed to convincing you and me every moment of every day that what is real is what you can touch with your hands and what you can see with your eyes. And if we're not careful, we will slip into that worldly existence where it's the tangible, physical things that we can see and touch. That represents reality. And the spiritual things are things that we are hoping are true, things that we are, are, are wishing were true. That, that's not the, the, the Bible's perspective. You see, that's going to make it really difficult to believe that you are the beloved son or daughter of the king of the universe. It's going to be really hard to believe that with all that you are when your circumstances are screaming out to you every day what a failure you are. It's going to be really hard to live as a, a, as a, as a kingdom dweller when there are people around you who are pointing out all the ways in which you're unlovable, when your accomplishments are forever reminding you that you aren't quite good enough, that no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you strive, no matter how close you get, you always miss the mark. You always fall short. You see, and that's the great thing about the Bible. It comes along and says things like we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. But then the physical things in life seem like they're conquering us every day. And so there's this wrestling match that we don't really talk about a lot, that we don't really, we don't really understand. We, don't, we, you know, we, we really don't even think about it. We, we know it's there, but because we're not sure how to resolve it, we just sort of leave it alone. You know what I mean? It's like, the, it's like the weird uncle that shows up every time that, you know, it's a holiday and comes over to your house and no one, you just listen to him. You don't ask questions. You know what I mean? He's just weird. You don't try to, you don't try to fix him. You don't, you don't sit down with him and say, you know, maybe, maybe you ought to change. You just go, wow, well, he's weird. He's always been that way. Well, I think that's how we maybe deal with our identity. You see, if it's been God's plan all along to build a people, which it has, His own special people, which I have shown you a thousand different ways, if that's His plan, 
that these people would have an identity that's grounded in Him as their perfect Heavenly Father who loves them unconditionally? Wouldn't there have been a better way to do this? I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, I think I can resolve the whole identity problem. Why don't we just think up a different way? I was thinking about it this week. I was like, God, why didn't you just make it so that every time a person got saved, every time a person genuinely became a Christian, they got a shadow. You see, the way that you would know that you are a Christian, the way that you would know that God is with you is that you would just look behind you when you're standing in the light and you'd see a shadow there and that would represent that the Spirit of God was within you. And all the people in the world who didn't know God and weren't their children, whenever they walked outside and stood in the sunlight and looked at the ground, there'd be no shadow. And if that were the case, then we would never doubt whether we were Christians or not. We would just check the shadow. Every time we felt vulnerable or we weren't sure what was going on, we just checked the shadow. Every time life seemed out of control and we were afraid that maybe God was going to forget us or miss us or we wouldn't be able to get through it, we could just check the shadow. Wouldn't that be great? God could have done that. So I thought to myself, man, God... I think I got an idea for you. That lasted for like one millisecond. That's a horrible idea. Why? Why is that such a bad idea? Some of you are like, really? I love it. No, it's a bad idea. Because here's what God says to that. He says, if that were the case, all you would do is jump through the hoops that you needed to jump through to get the shadow. And then you would spend your whole entire life jumping through hoops to keep the shadow. All that would do is create a system called legalism that he's been trying to explode ever since the gospel hit the ground running. That what would happen is if all we needed was a shadow, we'd just do whatever we had to do to get the shadow and whatever we had to do to maintain the shadow, and we wouldn't need a relationship with God. we just need the shadow. But God's not interested in that. He wants us to need Him. He wants a relationship with Him. You see, God has not done all that He's done. Listen closely to this. He has not done everything that he's done so that he could have sons and daughters. Do you understand that? The plan here, the goal in all this, he didn't, he didn't create creation and then put the garden there and Adam and Eve. The point wasn't so he could have sons and daughters. That's not the point of all this. The point of all this is so that he can have a relationship with sons and daughters. That's why things are the way they are. Because the authentic truths of the gospel, when they're clearly understood and discerned, drive the human heart to relationship with this amazing, loving Father. 
That's the point. God created mankind for, for relationship. It's always been that way from the beginning. The goal was for the people of God to dwell with him in relationship. Then sin enters into the world in Genesis 3, and suddenly we have shame and we have guilt, and it causes distance. That wasn't, that wasn't because of God. That's because of sin. But God desired relationship with you. So then the Bible comes along, and from Genesis to Revelation, it is the chronicle of God's restoration of man's relationship with him. That's the whole point. And if there's anything that the Bible teaches us, if there's anything that reading the Bible is going to instruct our heart about, it's that God's absolute commitment to accomplishing his plan is based on him. you got to get this. It's not based on you. It's based on him. The reason you can know for sure that God will do the things that he says he's going to do is not, has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. You see, in spite of all your mistakes and in spite of all of our foolishness and all of our rebellion, he presses onward. He doesn't stop, throw in the towel, quit, reboot. He keeps pressing and keeps pressing, forging a way for us to have relationship with him. And he does that by building a people whose identity is founded in him. For example, I just, sometimes this is one of those days that I, I just wish we were sitting in my living room and we just had all afternoon to have this conversation. Because it's so hard for me to choose just one place that's so misunderstood and so, so used against us. And, but I don't have that luxury. I can't just go book through book, just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. I mean, every single book I could show you in every book where God's doing this. But let's just pick some, some things that, that we're all familiar with that illustrate this, that we so often miss. The Ten Commandments, for example. God gives a blueprint to his people for how life is to be lived. I mean, he's the creator. In other words, he's the one who made all of this, so he's the expert on how it's going to work the best. And so in his goodness, in his kindness, he doesn't come and slam a list of rules down. You don't have to obey him if you don't want to. But if you want things to work out, if you want things to go the way that they can go, if you want to have experience what this life can offer you, here's the way you do that. So he comes along, he gives the Ten Commandments, the, this blueprint. Before Moses even gets off the mountain, he's not even down the mountain. And his own people have already turned their back on him and started worshiping something else. They've already lost patience. They've already, they've already turned their back and thought, oh, I don't know, this, maybe this isn't worth it. Let's make something stupid and worship that and give that all the credit for freeing us out of captivity. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 9, Verse 16, and I looked, and behold, 
you had sinned against the Lord your God, had made for yourselves molded, a molded calf, Moses says, and you turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. Then I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands and broke them before your eyes. Here's a great start to relationship. I mean, we are off to a just a jam-up start, man. I mean, here we are. God has done all of this. He is he is shown you his power and authority. He's poured his wrath out on Pharaoh through the ten plagues. I mean, he is, they, they've seen him part the Red Sea. They've walked across on dry land. Then they watched him swallow up all their enemies that were pursuing him. He's already fed them manna from heaven when they were hungry. He's already brought water from a rock when they were thirsty. He's already done all of this. And what's the response? Before he can even get down off the mountain, I mean, the first thing after they get the Ten Commandments, here's this beautiful gift from God to these unworthy, unappreciative, ungrateful people. Before he can even get off the, the, the mountain, they've already turned their back on him, and their leader has now broken the two tablets that he gave him. I mean, if there's not an opportunity, let's just punt. I mean, I see that we're going to have an emergency meeting in the Trinity. Let's get at Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let's all get together, talk about this. Okay, what are we going to do? Uh, Holy Spirit says, nuke them. Son says, I agree, nuke them. Okay, nuke them it is. It's over. That's what me, you, and someone else would agree to do if they did it to us. But what's God's response? Deuteronomy 10, God turns around. The Lord said... Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. In other words, get two new tablets. You know, it sounds like you're talking to a preschooler. Get your tablets. Okay, now bring them back up the mountain. But this time, we're going to bring a box to put them in so that they don't break. (laughs) And God says, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark for safekeeping. But that's not the end. The, what's the next thing God does? He moves from that. They, they figure that out. They come down. He moves from that into, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to build a sanctuary. Well, now, you know, I'm sure that some of you have read through Exodus and you've read that part, you know, and you think, well, man, God's kind of particular. He's kind of, you know, bossy. He's, I mean, what's, you know, like he's got to have the special place to dwell. Why did he do that, Exodus 25? Just don't, why don't you just take his word for things? Why did he do that? He says in Exodus 25, 8. Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. He says, yes, you, you know, you're wayward, you're disobedient, you break the tablets, you're, you know, you don't do the right thing, but I want to dwell with you. So make a sanctuary for me because I'm going to come and dwell among you because I want a relationship with you because I don't just want people, I want a special people that I have a relationship with. I don't just want sons or daughters, I want a relationship with them. I want to be your identity. You see, the difference between God's people and the rest of the world is not first and foremost wrapped up in what they do. Their identity is not based on how well they do it following the rules. The difference between them and the rest of the world is relationship with Him. It's the same for you.
and the same for me. So he says, make a, make a sanctuary that I can dwell with you. And isn't it interesting that all along, what's sort of dancing around the background of all of these things that are going on in the Old Testament is this sacrificial system. That God says, you know, here's the Ten Commandments, here's, here's the way you should live life, but here's the sacrificial system. Why? Because I know you're going to blunder it up. I'm, gonna, I'm building in a system for you to recognize the error of your ways and deal with those things. Now, how does he do that? Have you ever stopped to think about this for a second? Where is the central place that the sacrifice takes place? In other words, if, if you were around when I, was, uh, when I did a, a study through numbers, I remember one of the things that I could see on everyone's face as I was teaching through numbers as they were just mortified. And how the Old Testament, the, the, the tabernacle was just covered with blood. Basically, it was like a slaughterhouse. Isn't that interesting? Now, whose idea was that? If it was me, if I was God, here's what I would have done. I would have built my own special house in a gated community, and in all the mess that you made, you would have had to do that on the other side of the tracks. You see, God didn't say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to bring your sacrifices, and I want you to sacrifice uh, animals. Go, go, out, go way out into the forest and sacrifice, make an altar and sacrifice your animals. And when you're done with all that, take a bath and then come to me. You know what he said? Bring me your mess. Make a mess here. He said, bring it to here. You make a sacrifice here at this place that I've made to dwell with you. Then I want to be involved in your mess. And only fallen human flesh could twist that around and, and make that legalistic. It just blows my mind. You see, it's not just a system. The sacrificial system, it's not a system so that people would receive forgiveness. Again, he could have done that a million different ways and it would have been a whole lot easier and way more cleaner. No. It's a system by where they would receive forgiveness from him. Not out in the forest somewhere, from him. See, he says, when you get to the New Testament, isn't it the same thing? What does he tell you? When you're weary and burdened and heavy laden, does he tell you to go somewhere else? Does he tell you to go find a quiet place? He says, come unto me. What a great God. See, identity always precedes action. If it doesn't, it's something, but it's not Christianity. I mean, it's something. There's a million places. The vast majority of everything going on in this world and a lot of things going on in so-called Christianity, oh, there's something, but they're not Christianity. There's a whole bunch of action going on 
this preceding identity, and it's just a bunch of stuff. It's just things swirling around. It's busyness, but it's not Christianity. So how does this work? We have a restored relationship. That's going to lead to a rebuilt identity, which is then going to reshape our actions. And then what? It's going to renew our joy. And so that's what happens in Nehemiah chapter 12. Look at verse 27. They're going to have a big celebration. They're going to dedicate the wall. Just like we're going to have a celebration in a few moments at the Lord's table. They're going to have this celebration. And notice what they say. Verse 27 of chapter 12, Nehemiah. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. So they're going to have a party. They're going to celebrate the completion of these walls. And here's what they're going to do. They decide they're going to have not one choir. They're going to have two choirs. They're going to get choir A and choir B. And then Ezra is going to follow one choir around the walls this way. And Nehemiah is going to follow the other choir around the walls this way. And, man, they're going to be walking on the top of the wall singing and praising the Lord. And they're going to follow them around. And all the people are going to string in behind. And they're going to make their way around the city walls. And then they're going to meet in the middle. And when they meet in the middle, it is going to be on big time. I mean, they, they, are, they see what God has done. Verse 43, look at verse 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. Notice, they didn't offer sacrifices and were bummed out about it. They were rejoicing. Somehow when people get the right identity, sacrificing to God is a blessing. Can you imagine that? We ain't got time. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women, the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. My goodness gracious, what would happen? What would happen to a group of people whose identity was founded in Him? You know how we'd know? Because there would be this inexpressible joy that would pour out of your life into everything around you because your identity can't be dinged up by all the junk in the world, by all the voices that you're hearing. You'd be so confident in who you are. Listen, they were not, please listen, they were not celebrating their obedience. That's not what this is. And if you ever hear a preacher say that, get up and leave. They're celebrating not themselves, not what they had done. They're celebrating their father and what he did. They're rejoicing in him. That's why the Bible says in verse 43, for God had made them rejoice. He made them rejoice because he's their dad. Listen, it's been 150 years they've been in captivity. Everything around them for 150 years has screamed, you know what you are? Hebrew people, you're losers. You're failures. 
Oh, yeah, you had, it. you had a bright future at one time, but you blew that. You messed that up. Now you're just slaves to foreign lands. Now you're just has-beens washed up. The mistakes of your past have robbed you of your future. That's all they've seen. That's all they've heard for 150 years. All the things that could have been, all the things that should have been, they're gone. But interesting. Here's the people of God, the same people, celebrating with unbelievable joy what God has done, and they're still under Persian rule. They're not free. They're not a sovereign nation. Their circumstances haven't changed. What changed? Their identity changed. We sit around all day and all we want is our circumstances to change. We want God to fix this and fix that. God doesn't need to fix this or that. God needs to fix you and he needs to fix me. Then nothing changed except for their identity is in God. They're still in the same boat they were in. And yet, instead of moping around and molly-grubbing around about their situation, they're marching around the walls having a party. Now let's bring it home. How do we do this? Don't be looking around. Don't be thinking somewhere else. How do you, you ma'am, you sir, how do you do this? How does this happen week in and week out in the lives of people who are in such close proximity to this amazing news, this unbelievable opportunity. I mean, it's right there, and yet it slips through their fingers. How? We come to church. We share in all the richness and the blessing of the Father. We just rejoice in our spirit of what we're hearing and what God is saying. But somewhere between Sunday night and Monday morning, the voice in our head comes along and says, okay, now it's time to get back to reality. It's time to get back to what you can feel with your hands and see with your eyes. Not what you wish or hope, but let's get back to reality. You see, because I know on Sunday morning, oh, you, you, you listen to the pastor. You, you're, you're caught up and swept up in all the emotion and the passion of the moment. But man, come Monday, you're just a banker. You're just a teacher. You're just a, a, a welder. You're just a truck driver. You're too old. You're too young. You're too poor. You're not smart enough. You're certainly not spiritual enough. And so it's time to get back in the saddle of your life. It's time to get back in the saddle of your worldly identity that has been laid out perfectly for you to just fall right into. And you know what the road to the world's identity for you is paved with forgotten dreams, abandoned hopes, squandered opportunities, 
mistakes that can never be righted. That's the, that's the road. And so you walk out of the presence of the kingdom and the Father right back into some concocted identity that's been made for you by the powers of this world. You see, the world has one primary agenda for you when it comes to identity. It wants to make sure that you know that whatever you are, ma'am, sir, whatever you are, it's based on what you do. And it's based on what you've done. And if you want to pretend for a moment on Sundays or Wednesdays that your father is a king, the world says, well, go right ahead. If you want to, if you want to have this little fairy tale in your head that somehow you're the child of the, of the God who sits on the throne of the universe, you, you go right ahead. But come Monday, it's back to reality. It's back to what you can feel and what you can see. That's how it gets you. Yet the Bible comes along and says things that are like a nuclear bomb in that way of thinking. Things like Romans chapter 8, where the Scripture tells us that as many of us that are led by the Spirit of God, we're the sons of God, or the daughters of God. We're the children of God. For you, as His children, you didn't receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received a spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. That all the while, the world is determining who you are and all of your value and all of your worth is based on what you do or what you've done or how well you perform. And all the while, God's saying, I'm not somebody else's father that you come and visit on the weekend. I'm not some, some father that lives in a book, some mythical character that you read about that you hope what's true for you. Some, I'm not some, some perfect family that you see walking in the park that you can look to and try to strive for and you can think maybe someday I could be like, that's not what I am. I'm your daddy. You call me dad. I want you to come, get up on my lap, put your arms around me and call me dad. That's what the gospel says. You're my beloved son. You're my daughter. My riches, my blessing are yours forever and ever. And nothing can ever reverse that or change that. It doesn't matter how bad of a kid you are. It doesn't matter what your behavior is like. If you are my kid, that will never change. And I love you and I'm your dad. And my door is always open. And you don't need a shadow to know that. Because I'm telling you, based on the authority of thousands of years of historical record, that I've done every single thing exactly the way I said I would do it. And I will never leave you 
or forsake you. My riches, my kingdom, my blessing, and my love can never be exhausted. If God is a father, you are a family. There's no other way to put it. There's no other way to explain it. There's no other way it could be. And so in this world, if your identity has been shaped by your broken family, if it's been shaped by what you do for a living, if what the world thinks about you is somehow tied to your appearance, maybe for some of you in here this morning, you've been striving and working to define your relationship with God on your own terms. You have, you have felt the oppression of the gospel over your head. You strive to live up to his standards. You work to earn his love. And because of things that have been taught to you that are lies, many of them have been taught to you by religious-sounding people who don't understand the gospel and who are messengers from Satan, your identity has been shaped by a relationship with some angry God who's just waiting for you to step out of line so he can smash you on the head because you've messed up, because you failed yet again. And I say, no. I say the Bible declares, the gospel declares that in Christ, you who are his are his beloved children. There's no other category. There's only one. If you're his, you're his beloved child. And nothing can ever change that. You have a father. You have a father who works everything, everything in your life together for your good to drive you to a deeper and deeper relationship with him. That's what he does. And because he loves you, because he loves you, you can know that he loved you before you got divorced. You can know he loved you before you declared bankruptcy. He can know that you can know that he loved you before you had an abortion. You can know that he loves you before you got diagnosed with cancer. You can know that he loved you before any of those things befell you because he knew that they were all coming, yet he loved you anyway, and his love hasn't changed. And guess what? He still loves you today, and he will love you forever. And he wants to do every single thing that he can do so that you never Forget that. That's why we celebrate the Lord's table. He said, do this, not because if you don't, I'm going to punch you in the jaw. Not because if you don't, I'm going to spank you with the belt. Do this in remembrance of me. Because I love you. Because you're my people. Your identity is the root. It's the base from which you live your life. And maybe somehow, by the mercy of God, you could hear today the voice of God with the authority of God speak into your heart. Your name. Your name. He knows your name. And then we call you by name. And he would give you identity in him this morning. And for the first time, you would just lay down 
all of this worldly nonsense and thinking that he'd whisper in your ear, you're my son, you're my daughter. And your behavior didn't get you into this and you can't behave your way out of it. Identity. It always precedes actions. Before we can do anything good, we got to know that we're His. So here's my question for you. Who are you? Who are you? Have you received the spirit of adoption by which you cry out, Daddy, let's stand and bow our heads.